0: Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Today on the show, China's Belt and Road Initiative, how far it's come, what it's achieved, and how it's changed. Plus, the balance of protecting heritage homes in Vancouver with that struggle, of course, to try and build more affordable housing. We'll have our regular BIV guest, Jason Turcott back on the show for that. But first, we're hosting a number of events over the course of the month that we'd like to share, and hopefully we get to see you at. Anyone wanting to sell a business will no doubt want to find the best price for that company, but they'll also want to make sure that they find the right buyer. On May 8th, we have a panel of experts who will walk through how to do both. The discussion will also cover common mistakes and how to avoid them, how and when to begin preparing for a sale, and advice from people who are very familiar with the deal-making process. The event is called Finding the Best Price and Buyer for Your Business. It's part of our Business Excellence series and will be hosted at the Vancouver Club. Again, that's taking place on May 8th. On May 14th, our next BIV Talks event examines money laundering in British Columbia. You can hear directly from Peter German, author of the Money Laundering Reports commissioned by BC's Attorney General. The CEO of the BC Real Estate Association, Darlene Hyde, will also be speaking. Canada is preparing for the second wave of cannabis legalization, as are investors and businesses. On May 22nd, our Cannabis 2.0 event will size up the players, the products, and the opportunities in this expanded market. Finally, ride-sharing appears to be on track to come to British Columbia this year. You can join BIV for an introduction to the road ahead. BIV presents Talking Ride-Sharing with Lyft May 29th, at the Van City Theatre. For tickets and information on all of our events, visit biv.com events. Every other week, we take a deeper look at the economics, policies, and issues as well as the politics of the world's fastest growing region in our Asia 360 segment. Today, we explore China's Belt and Road Initiative with me, as he is every two weeks, Jeff Reeves, Vice President of Research at the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada. Thanks for coming in.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So we just had the second forum of this Belt and Road Initiative. Tell me what was up for debate, what was discussed?
1: Right. So this uh, this was really, in some ways, the first substantial uh, forum that, that we've had, or at least that China has run around the Belt and Road Initiative. So the first was in 2017. And for most analysts, most people that watch the, the Belt and Road Initiative, this was seen as more of a coming out party than anything else. Uh, they didn't define, for example, the scope of the BRI. There weren't a lot of... Um, references to key performance indicators, for example. But in this particular meeting, uh, it was much more focused on the substance and providing an outline of what the Belt and Road is, what it hopes to be, and some of the areas where it's already achieved, at least from Beijing's perspective, some success.
0: What is it at this point in time and how has that maybe changed over the last number of years?
1: Well, you know, this is a very amorphous concept. Uh, It changes day-to-day in some instances, depending on how Beijing wants to frame it. Uh, There are some consistencies, though, across the way that it's been formulized, at least um, from 2015 until now. So the original idea came out in 2013. Uh, Xi Jinping traveled to Indonesia and Kazakhstan, where he announced this idea of a maritime silk road and then of a silk road economic belt, one going into Southeast Asia from China and one moving into uh, Central Asia. So in 2015 was the first time that they actually tried to define what they were talking about. And they brought these two concepts together in this idea of one belt and one road. So in 2015, the National Development and Reform Commission, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Ministry of Commerce put out a paper that described what the goals of the one belt, one road were. And those were specifically around helping China align its policy, its development and economic policy with developing states around creating infrastructure, interconnectivity between China and Asia, around focusing on um, opening up trade and getting rid of trade barriers. Uh, coordination across financial sectors, and lastly, people-to-people exchanges. So when we do talk about the Belt and Road Initiative, we tend to do it in economic terms, but there's a whole policy and even all the way down to -to people-to-people relations, education relations, art and culture exchanges that are included in this really, really broad concept.
0: We can get into what the world thinks of this initiative, but first, what do you think Belt and Road means to China?
1: So uh, at the end of this forum, they released another paper talking about where they are right now with the BRI, and they referenced the 2015 paper and said, these are still our primary goals. We still want to use the BRI for this. So from China's perspective, on the one hand, it's about economic interdependence or interconnectivity. Mm. Uh, It's also about drawing China deeper into an infrastructure web between Southeast Asia, East Asia, and Central Asia that will help China develop at a domestic level. So a lot of the BRA thinking can be traced back to other foreign policy concepts that have come out of Beijing. Uh, One of the most important is the develop the West concept, which came forward uh, under Jiang Zemin, I think, so in the 1980s, eighties, nineteen. 1990s, this idea of providing, uh, using trade to help develop China's interior provinces, mostly Xinjiang, this idea that if you bring development there, you can address issues around domestic security as well. So the focus of the Belt and Road on Central Asia and linking Xinjiang into Central Asia and then all the way to Europe uh, is is fundamental to, to the way that China thinks about trade, its international image, but also its internal development.
0: How does Europe, how does the West of the world think of BRI?
1: Well, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, Italy came out and Mm -hmm. said that it signed an MOU with China around cooperation with the BRI. So this is the first G7 state that actually came out and said, okay, we're going to embrace these BRI opportunities. So this was a big debate in Europe, uh, and particularly because Germany and France have come forward and raised some concern around issues about China investing in sensitive areas, uh, China using the Belt and Road Initiative to bring Eastern Europe a little bit closer into China's sphere of influence, at least from um, the perspectives of, of uh, Paris and, and Berlin, uh, and also just the idea of losing control over development strategies within the European Union. So. Uh, on the one hand, you have countries like Greece and Italy in Europe that are looking towards China as being a very important source of investment. Uh, Greece has also come forward and said that it wants to participate in China's 16 plus one mechanism, which is about China's interaction with Eastern Europe. And it's built around the BRI kind of loosely. So, uh, I mean, you'll, you'll, we'll see greater BRI investment in Greece as a result. So we're, there's a, a divide in Europe between the developed and the developing economies, to use kind of a loose term to talk about the southern part of Europe.
0: It reminds me of the Euro crisis and how countries like Greece and Italy yes. were often in a position where they're begging the EU to forgive debts, to provide them financing, to help them economically. And now you have a country like Italy that has turned to China. How politically driven is this versus maybe economically driven?
1: I think the two are inseparable, really. When you think about Greece going to to Brussels and asking for bailouts around, for example, its port, and then China actually stepping forward and providing some financing uh, to uh, Greece's continuing continuing run of its port. Now that port is is quite profitable. Uh, That was a very, very important political issue for Athens, and at the same time, one that had direct ties back to economics. So that is a key, I think, concern uh, from European leadership, that you'll start to see states looking for uh, political or economic opportunities with the BRI that have those political implications, and not only at a domestic level for that state, but for the broader European Union. You know, uh, um, project.
0: So BRI, it's a very real option, whereas countries, maybe they would have had to have gone to the EU or World Bank. Right Now China is here and it seems very willing to provide capital for any kind of project.
1: So the uh, around the time that the BRI was launched, the Asian Development Bank came out with a study that said there's about $11 trillion in need of infrastructure investment in Asia alone. So as China stepped forward and said, well, we have this Belt and Road Initiative, initially they pledged up to a trillion dollars worth of funding from their own development banks. Uh, and they they really saw that they were stepping into a void that needed to be filled. So um, from that perspective, I think they see the Belt and Road Initiative as being central not only to Asia's development, but to developing states' opportunities to invest in their own infrastructure. Um, among developing states in Asia, investment in infrastructure and infrastructure development are often the highest priority in terms of their own internal investment and development. So China stepping up and providing that funding is really filling a void.
0: This is, of course, a longer term play, but what has it achieved so far?
1: So uh, the the results are, are debated uh, <laughs> right now. You can see differing analysis around how much money's actually been spent. Mm. China claims about a trillion dollars has been not only uh, allocated but uh, dispersed to Belt and Road Initiative projects. I've seen more conservative estimates out of academia that say about $84 billion has been spent, uh, all the way up to uh, half a billion dollars. So again, because the Belt and Road is so difficult to define, Mm -hmm. what's included and what's excluded are are kind of up for debate in many issues or in many instances. Uh, Some of the very key tangibles are around areas like the China-Pakistan economic corridor, where China's pledged about $65 billion to help Pakistan develop telecommunications, infrastructure, and energy. And some of those projects have been ongoing. Uh, Other areas where China is investing in railways in places like Laos and Thailand, uh, those projects are ongoing. Uh, there's there's issues around the, the debt in some of those places. Uh, but China, at this Belt and Road Initiative, has shown a willingness to renegotiate some of its terms, especially when states do show some sort of uh, um, debt uh, problems around their debt or, or debt hmm. financing.
0: So the concern that this is a, a ploy to trap countries in debt is that warranted or like what's your position on that
1: well so my position is usually to look at uh, on a case by case basis and uh, developing states do have debt problems right now. That's, mm-hmm. that's without a question. Um, to tie that back to China and the Belt and Road Initiative, however, is a stretch. When you look at some of the, the largest holders of debt around African countries, for example, China is just the largest debt holder in, in a few cases. The traditional debt holders from the European Union or from the, the United States still own a lot of debt in Africa. Right. So when you hear discussions at the domestic level in developing states in Africa or in Southeast Asia, it's not about China. It's about making sure that they have institutions in place at the domestic level, whether it's governance or in terms of oversight, um, corruption, anti-corruption, transparency, that allow them to take those debts on and service the debts long term. So, yeah, debt is definitely a concern for developing countries. It is not specific to the BRI. And to suggest that really ties back to this idea that everything that Beijing does has some nefarious undertone, right? right. That it's using this economic strategy to advance some dark, grand you know, strategy. And I think that's very much an American-centric argument, but it just doesn't play out. And we've seen some great scholarship coming out of places like George Washington University around Chinese debt in Africa that points specifically to the fact that Yes, yeah, some, in some instances, there are debt problems, but these are not uh, a concerted state-driven approach to try to use debt to, to gain control over assets.
0: On the topic of states having the infrastructure in place to manage debt and manage major projects, is that something that we're seeing Beijing maybe offer to help with, or is that something that states on their own really have to reach that level first? That's a
1: great a great segue back into some of the outcomes of the 2019 um, summit that we just saw, the Belt and Road Initiative uh, Um, forum that just concluded. There was a lot of talk about helping states develop internal capacity to manage debt and to be more thoughtful about debt sustainability when making loans around Belt and Road Initiative projects. Now, part of that is Beijing understanding that it has to learn from its mistakes and that while it doesn't buy into the debt trap narrative, there are states out there that do, and it needs to get ahead of that in order to maintain uh, the Belt and Road Initiative as a a positive marketing tool or as a positive organizational tool. Uh, So I think that, yeah, that's... um, Important part, yeah.
0: If we were to compare, say, the membership or attendance of these two forums, the first one and the one that just concluded, what's changed? What are some of the biggest takeaways?
1: Well, so uh, the 2017 meeting just had a handful of national leaders show up. This time there were 34 in attendance, mostly from the Asia Pacific region. Uh, that shows the consolidation at least at the regional level has been relatively successful for Mm -hmm. Beijing at this point. There's pretty widespread buy-in to the idea of the Belt and Road Initiative, not as necessarily a a Chinese-led initiative, but as an opportunity for these developing countries to get um, financing and, and funding for big infrastructure projects. And the Belt and Road Initiative is an important part of that. There are a lot of different financial vehicles that fall under the Belt and Road Initiative. For example, China makes loans through its own um, development banks. There's a a, a Belt and Road Initiative Bank. There's a a development fund that comes out of the the BRICS construct. Uh, There's the uh, Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, AIIB. Um, They all loan and they all give money. Not all of it's under BRI. So states do look to these institutions as just opportunities for investment, not so much as, hey, if we take money from AIIB, we're part of the BRI. Right. Um, so yeah, those debates are going on in the region.
0: Where would you say the current US administration has sort of positioned itself in relation to BRI?
1: Well, so we've seen uh, comments coming out of, for example, the vice president's office where, or, or the secretary of state, Pompeo, when he's, he's traveled to developing countries and, and really pushed forward this narrative that... Beijing is using the Belt and Road Initiative to draw smaller developed states into a debt trap and that they need to be smarter about taking money from Beijing. They need to be more discerning about entering into to contracts with Chinese companies because long term it's not good for their development. I think in a lot of ways that argument is falling flat in mm-hmm. developing countries. Many developing countries say, yeah, well, we understand the problem of debt. This is nothing new from us. In fact, investment from the United States has been part of this problem in the past. We're going to manage debt going forward as we see suitable for our own national and domestic interests and don't really want to listen to the United States at this point. Because importantly, the United States hasn't offered an honest to goodness, robust alternative to the Belt and Road Initiative, aside from committing 10 or I think it's about $60 billion worth of private sector investment. But it certainly doesn't have a a state-led industrial policy around providing this kind of investment for developing states.
0: Well, if we see more and more countries join on to BRI, if we see it continue to share billions of dollars in capital, do you think we end up seeing the U.S. put forward some kind of an alternative?
1: You know, it's difficult because the the structure of the U.S. government is just different. The, The U.S. doesn't do big government spending on overseas developments. Even development aid has been drawn down in in recent years around the United States. From a US domestic perspective, there's not a lot of appetite for um, tax dollars going overseas to help developing countries develop their own rail and road systems when the United States is in such need of of an investment in its own internal uh, infrastructure. We're seeing Bridges collapsing, um, roads that are full of potholes. And, and there's a general sense in the United States that you need to first invest in U.S. infrastructure before you do it abroad.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the criticisms of BRI has been that it's not green, but green infrastructure was right. one of the themes that came up at the forum. What did we learn?
1: So again, it's uh, Beijing trying to get ahead of some of the criticism or learn from past uh, failures and and best practices as they become more apparent. Um, Xi Jinping made a commitment to thinking about investing not only in uh, areas with with green technology potential, but also having more robust environmental uh, assessment impacts, impact assessments around some of the, the bigger infrastructure projects that the BRI will invest in. So there is a commitment to making sure that there's more sustainability moving forward on the debt side and also on the environmental side.
0: I always like to ask you about what this means for Canada. What does BRI mean for Canada? Where are we positioned in this initiative?
1: Well, so there's a couple opportunities for Canada. Uh, cooperation in third-party countries is, is an increasing opportunity for Canadian firms. Uh, so for example, I think Canada is already involved in some projects in places like Uzbekistan, in the Ukraine, in Papua New Guinea, around mining and around um, renewable energy and sustainable energy, including nuclear energy in some places, development. So those are projects that have been identified as BRI projects where Canadian firms are bringing their expertise and their services to help those developing states achieve their goals. Uh, Other opportunities include, uh, for example, coordination around provincial-level initiatives. So, for example, the, the B.C. Pacific uh, Gateway Initiative. There was some discussion between BC government and the government of Guangdong in in China uh, about partnerships around the BRI and that gateway project in order to find either investment in infrastructure or areas of greater interconnectivity through trade and services. So those are opportunities uh, at a provincial level. I think at a a, uh, government level, there's an opportunity to be involved in due diligence around some of the lending. Mm. And we've seen that with uh, Canada's participation in the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, where it's going in and actually helping uh, the investment bank think about the sustainability, the feasibility, and the impact of some of its its loaning and investments in developing countries.
0: You mentioned earlier that there's increasingly a, a great body of research being done on BRI and its impacts. What should people keep in mind when assessing a lot of the conflicting reports that are out there or a lot of the criticisms that are out there? What should they, what lens should they view this initiative through or try to understand it through?
1: So I think the easiest way to answer this is through an anecdote around the forum. So um, in a There was a a sidebar discussion at the BRI uh, last week around this idea of debt sustainability. The people that showed up to that were mainly from advanced economies and developed economies, uh, specifically listening to some of the projects or some of the solutions that Beijing is bringing to this idea of sustainable debt. Very few developing countries actually sent any representatives to that meeting. There was a concurrent meeting going at the same time where developing countries were able to make a pitch around getting investment <laughs> in major infrastructure projects. And they prioritized that meeting over, overcoming and talking about sustainable debt. Now, I think that division is very emblematic of the way that scholarship on the BRI is going. On the one hand, you have advanced economies coming forward and saying, this isn't good for develop- the developed world, the developing world. You know, the BRI is just going to draw them into relationships of exploitation. From the developing world, there's a sense that, well, no, actually this investment is much needed. There's not alternative investment options in some instances where they can can go to the IMF or the uh, Asian Development Bank or other multilateral financial institutions. Um, developing states are actually better able to get better terms around BRI financing. So. I think they feel that it's another option and options are always good. And ultimately, at the end of the day, managing the debt is their domestic responsibility. And they're not looking uh, for input from places like Washington, D.C. around how they should accept uh, investment and how they should think about engagement with China. And that's reflected in the scholarship as well.
0: And we're talking about much needed infrastructure investment too, right? Transportation could be around clean water, could be around lifting groups of people out of poverty, absolutely, very critical.
1: So very, very much tied to issues of of poverty alleviation and sustainable economic development. For developing countries, this initial investment is huge. When I talked earlier about in 2015 and then this new 2019 strategy around the policy alignment piece of the the Belt and Road Initiative, a lot of what you see is when um, Beijing goes to places like Mongolia or Kazakhstan or Vietnam or Myanmar, those countries already have development strategies in place, like the STEP uh, development program in Mongolia. And when you look at their number one priority, it's around attracting foreign investment in their infrastructure development. And China's basically stepping in and pushing against an open door in these instances, because these states know that they need it. They've identified it as the critical component of their own modernization, and Beijing's there to, to kind of backfill that need.
0: How do you think this positions then Beijing in the minds of some of these developing? states china has said it wants to be a world leader it's spoken very much about globalization right. and the need to come together it sounds like this is an avenue for achieving that
1: if you can see the differences between 2017 and 2019 in terms of the international buy-in to the belt and road initiative concept it's it's remarkable uh, the difference between 4 heads of state and 34 heads of state in 2 years do show that this narrative is gaining traction right even the basic underlying uh, principle of providing investment to developing countries so that they can use that to develop their own internal capacity. They can do things around trade. They can do things around labor manufacturing because of this kind of investment. It's it's huge, and there's no other player that stepped out and said that they they want to provide this funding. And so, as much as we can be critical of it, and, and as, as often as analysts point to Sri Lanka, and the the Chinese. Uh, um, 90-year lease over the Hambantota port in Sri Lanka as evidence of debt-trap diplomacy and exchanging debt for assets. I mean, these are still outliers. What we're rather seeing is that there is widespread acceptance in the developing and developed uh, world around engagement with China on these terms.
0: Fascinating. A very important initiative to watch and what I'm sure we're going Absolutely. to be talking about many weeks to come. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So Jeff Reeves, he's Vice President of Research at the Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada. I love walking around my neighborhood on Commercial Drive and admiring the many heritage houses that call the area home. Many of them have actually gone from being simply single detached houses to multifamily buildings. Joining me today as he does every two weeks is Jason Turcott, Vice President of Development at Cressy Development Group to talk a little bit more about heritage homes in the city. Jason, as always, good to have you on.
2: Happy to be back on with you.
0: Does heritage come with some kind of protected status in the city? How does that work?
2: Yeah, well, the city has a registry of uh, heritage buildings um, that identify any uh, any of the structures or significant uh, monuments or even, you know, I think they even have um, landscape features or art features that can be uh, designated as heritage. So they keep a registry of it all, and uh, um, um, as you know, as you go through our processes with the city, they may they may in fact identify um new structures that aren't on the registry and ask that they uh they be considered for um retention or at least in part to be re- retained as part of um redevelopment so just because you're not on the registry now doesn't mean it uh it can't be mm. um they're 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 adding new buildings and structures to it all the time
0: and is there a certain age that defines heritage
2: well the t- typically or not typically what the city has basically um done is looked at anything, I believe it's pre nineteen forties, and said that it needs to be kind of considered. Mm. Uh, and then you go through a bit of an assessment of it. So if it's not on the registry, it's pre nineteen forties. There is a, um, a process that you go through. The first, um, the first being a statement of significance. So there are um, heritage consultants in town that will look at it and, uh, from both an architectural perspective and a sort of a context and character. Uh, perspective. So one is, you know, how old is the structure and is there anything specific about the building itself that um, that warrants uh, protection? And then, you know, is it significant for some other reason, be it cultural or that it was a part of a neighborhood that is um, particularly important to our history, et cetera, et cetera. So you go through that process and if they determine that there's some merit to it, they, uh, they'll encourage you. And I put air quotes around encourage you uh, to <laughs> protect
0: it. Sure. Of course, if we're talking about buildings built before the 1940s, they probably need some updating if they haven't been updated already. How does that process work? Because, of course, you're trying to preserve, in theory, certain aspects of the building without changing too much. But you also probably have to replace a couple floor planks and maybe some more important things.
2: Yeah, yeah. You, you know, it's, it's an interesting dilemma in that... Um, There's certainly a real, um, you know, benefit to to recognizing some of these heritage buildings and and preserving them. You know, we've been a part of several um, right next to where I'm sitting now in my office across the lane. We did an office redevelopment um, at um, Seventh and Ash and the building that we in that instance relocated you know, we turned it 90 degrees and it now addresses ash street and it's home to a little coffee shop It's the most charming little thing it really it really is one of the really cool examples of a heritage revitalization but if you'd seen what was the state of the building before it was relocated and and refinished um You know, you you wouldn't even have gone in there like it was uh, very dilapidated. So, of course, that comes with a real cost. You know, it's much, much more expensive than building from new. But you do get at the end of the day, in some instances, uh, a charm to a building that you you can't quite get if you're going straight from scratch.
0: Mm -hmm. This reminded me of a thought experiment from high school. I had to look it up. The ship of Theseus, where you essentially replace all the planks of a ship. And then the question is, is it the same ship or is it an entirely new thing? And I was thinking about this for heritage homes. If you replace too much, at what point is it no longer a heritage home? At what point is it a new structure? Are there rules around what can be replaced or what needs to be preserved in order for a building to maintain that heritage status?
2: Yeah, there are. Um, they, they, you know, The Heritage Commission definitely you know i don't know if they're rules as much as they are guidelines because of course you know paramount here is is building code and safety so you have to have a structurally sound building if you're going to you know if you're going to go through a any kind of significant res- renovation um whether it's heritage or not has to meet all current building code standards and often these older buildings don't you know so if if it's plumbing and electrical or or seismic um you know so that's structural uh, related you know uh the the amount of upgrades typically is is significant and what you're actually left with at the end is is primarily new um but there are certain criteria you know they want you to to um you know refinish and and refurbish windows as a as as an example that's one of the things that you know is um is high on the list siding where you can uh, should be removed and preserved and reapplied and if, if you don't have enough you you know finding other older siding that matches is a priority so there's you know, there's certain attention paid to certain details that, that are really important, and those typically tend to be on the front facade. I think it's often recognized that, you know, the interior of a space is going to change significantly, and it's that front facade that is, that is most important, where they, 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 um, they want to see the most care and attention taken to preserve as many of the uh, original elements as you can.
0: And we've seen some interesting examples of that. I'm thinking of New Westminster, for example. They have some new residential towers where they've kept uh, what's sometimes just a four-story or six-story heritage facade. It looks really cool. It's an old bank or something like that. But underneath and around it and above it, it's a brand new building. So you get to keep that character. But of course, the building behind it is completely up to code.
2: Yeah. And I think, like I said earlier, it it just adds a a character that you know even if you tried to do it new i don't know that it would be quite the same and, there, and there's a nostalgia element too to knowing that something has been preserved even though you know it may be only in fairly limited pieces that are actually original there's there's a i think just a a good feeling about about you know something being old and significant from a different era that we don't all uh you know that we can't remember but we we could only imagine what it was like in you know the early 1900s in vancouver and i think that that's a that's a that's a just a cool thing to have around the city, for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. When it comes to these upgrades and renovations of heritage buildings, are they typically for residential purposes, or are we seeing a lot of, say, commercial instances where a coffee shop moves in, or maybe it's a more of a live workspace?
2: Yeah, it, you know, all of the above. I mean, we, I just mentioned the example we have where we did the, the old that old house. It's called the Shaw House. Which is now this really cute little coffee shop, but we're also going through one right now at uh, in your neighborhood at our uh, Conrad project, which is at 18th and Commercial. Um, that was an old pre-1940s home that was um, not so much high on the architectural heritage uh, significance, uh, but but more for the uh, context and um, you know what it stood for in terms of that neighborhood and what happened there back in the day. Uh, and we've relocated that house uh, to face it, used to face Commercial Drive and now faces 18th. And it is being uh, revitalized and, in, and will be subdivided actually into two. So we've done an extension onto the back and we're, we're doing two uh, rental townhomes within that. So it'll effectively be a duplex that will be rental housing um, and will be very cool. I mean, it'll be great family housing as part of our uh, Conrad development. So you'll see. Um, heritage uh, uh, restoration for single family uh, converted to multifamily. And then, of course, there's lots of instances where it goes into uh, um, sort of live work and, you know, coffee shops, hair studios, um, even office space.
0: Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that transition from what was single family to multifamily helps with some of the costs of restoration, because I imagine, of course, you want to preserve the heritage, but it could be maybe a lot more expensive to be trying to preserve something as opposed to starting from scratch.
2: Yeah. It kind of goes back to that, that, you know, that dilemma I talked about a few minutes ago and that, you know, there's no question we could build two uh, equally livable, um, uh duplex units for far less. It is very, very expensive. I mean, from the relocation expenses to trying to relocate or or try to try to find suitable materials for the original siding and, and removing and, and replacing and um, refurbishing wood windows, for example, it's it's tremendously expensive. So there is a trade off for sure when we talk about um You know, these heritage projects in the context of of affordability, they don't really go hand in hand. So you kind of got to weigh these things uh, off against each other. I mean, there's certainly, uh, like we talked about, uh, a real positive thing about keeping some of these older structures around and preserving some of the history of our city. But it is very, very, very expensive to do. So it is not helping the affordability equation one bit.
0: Fair enough. Jason, as always, great having you on the show. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. That's Jason Turcott, Vice President of Development at Cressy Development Group. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. You can get notified of new episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes and Stitcher. You can listen to all of our episodes at BIV.com slash audio. And of course, for more business news across media, visit BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening.